Hey, listeners, Troy here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the AC Podcast. We wanted to take a quick second to thank each and every one of you who joined us last week for the AC Literary Expedition as we discussed progressive Christianity. It was an amazing conversation and a lot was discussed. We're also fully aware that not everyone who signed up was actually able to make it on the night of the event. Don't worry, we got you covered. Simply head over to the website at apologeticscanada.com and select the tab that says resources. From there, you're going to see second from the top, it'll say ACLE Archive. Simply select it and follow the instructions. There, you're going to see the YouTube video. You'll be able to stream or download the audio as well as downloading the notes. We also have links to all the resources we used for the night of the event. And that's it. That's all you need. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Steve, your host. I'm here with Wesley Huff. How you doing? Great, great. Good to have you here. Um, it's been a long time since you and I got together. Uh, we have a very special guest on the line today. Uh, we have on the line uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. He, up until pretty recently, he served as scholar-in-residence at Logos Bible Software in Bellingham. He is currently executive director and professor at uh, Awakening School of Theology and Ministry in Jacksonville, Florida. He is, if you guys know the uh, Naked Bible podcast at all, you'll be familiar with his voice then. We invited him today to talk a little bit about angels and demons and all things unseen, shall we say, uh, and what our understanding, biblical understanding of them should be. Um, Wesley is a big fan, apparently. He's plowed through uh, a number of Dr. Heiser's books, and so he's going to take the lead on this. But before we get started, Dr. Heiser, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, I've told our listeners a little bit about your about your professional side of who you are, uh, but this is something that we do at our podcast. We want to give you a chance to humanize yourself in the eyes or the ears of our listeners. So at the risk of uh, getting too philosophical, who is Michael Heiser? Yeah, well, I, I shouldn't be doing this at home then, because I could have just held up a pug. I, I love <laughs> pugs. I have two of them. I'm just a dog lover uh, in general, but uh, yeah, the, the, the pugs are awesome. And I, I I put them in front of cameras as often as I can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, most of what I do is scholarly stuff, but, you know, I, I have spent a lot of time. Um, I, I like to tell people, even before I became a believer, I was always interested in anything old and weird. Mm-hmm. So I actually spent a lot of time, hopefully, in a in a positive, apologetic sort of way on the fringe. I've been in the, in the fringe community for 20 years. You know, UFOs, paranormal stuff, you know, all that that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like science fiction. Uh, I've spoken at UFO conferences. And I tell people, you haven't lived in, in, until you've given the gospel to 500 people in a room at a UFO conference. <laughs> 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 you know, then you start looking for the exits. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I, I try to meet people where they're at and have an interest in certain areas of pop culture. You never know where their entry point into thinking about the Lord, you know, thinking about biblical things, mm-hmm. uh, really life and death things when it comes to the gospel. You never know where that's going to be, you know, for a lot of these people. And they've adopted alternative worldviews. So I, I think somebody needs to spend some time there. And I'm interested enough in the subject matter that I do that. 
Uh, I like football and baseball. Um, I play a lot of fantasy sports. So just, mm -hmm. you know, okay. I guess that's the non-academic side. Awesome. Even though, even though the fringe stuff I make academic, I force people to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but still, it's off the it's off the beaten path of the you know mm -hmm. biblical studies. Yeah, great, and, and we we need that for sure. Uh, you mentioned worldview earlier, um, and, and I was this is something that I guess you learn day one of any sort of biblical studies course, but the role of worldviews in reading the Bible. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, on the one hand, you would think what you just said is true, but in practice, it often is not. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is you'll hear worldview talk in a Bible, you know, Bible college class, a seminary class, and that typically gets reduced to well, these people lived a long time ago, and let's look at what historically was going on. And ooh, they used you know pots, mm. you know, like in archaeology. It 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 actually very seldom filters into worldview how how ancient people thought about the world mm. and how they thought about the supernatural world in particular. And if it ever gets there, the the biblical writers are sort of excluded, mm. like, like they weren't thinking any of the same thoughts at all. And that that is just demonstrably untrue. Uh, a lot of what happens in the Bible does find as its launching point a lot of these ways that people thought about the supernatural world, the gods, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is polemic, but not always. There's a shared worldview. For instance, you know, the the afterlife, the underworld, and things like that. A lot of the biblical language uh, comes right out of, you know, the, the world in which the writers live. There's easy cognates in, in, you know, from Hebrew to other Semitic languages. You know, like, like there's this Hebrew word, well, Ugaritic, which is a, a Canaanite language, might have the same word. He's using the same way, the same context, means the same things. So we, we, we tend to sort of I think passively reinforced this idea that the biblical people, biblical writers were in this foreign world, but they didn't share any of its thoughts. And that is not the case. In fact, if, if you approach scripture that way, you are shutting the door to understanding a very large amount of what is written in the Bible. So it would be really important to understand not only it, it, in order to get a more accurate understanding of say, the book of Genesis, which the, the early chapters can be really contentious in terms of, you know, how do we understand it? You're saying we need to understand what other cultures around Israel were thinking in order for us to sort of get into their mindset, so to speak, so we can get an accurate understanding. Yeah, we, we, what, what it really boils down to is, is the way we're taught to think about the Bible. Mm. And, and you know, I'm, I still use words like inspiration and inerrancy. I think they're important. And yes, I know everybody gets to define inerrancy and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to abandon the term because I, I think the, there, there's something behind it that is important that, that we need to affirm. But we're sort of taught that scripture is kind of downloaded into the heads of the writers or that the writers weren't doing anything human when they produced the Bible. 
And, and again, these ideas are demonstrably flawed in, in really significant ways. It actually makes the, the Bible quite vulnerable to criticism, you know, when we approach it this way. And, and if we're taught to think this way about the Bible, again, we sort of default to, you know, the, we, we, we sort of balk at the, the notion that a biblical writer could have been thinking the same thoughts about certain things that a it, one of his pagan neighbors would be. So we have to mm -hmm. affirm that the biblical writers, by providence, I take a very providential view of inspiration. God doesn't go around zapping people and we get biblical books out of it. Okay, mm -hmm. what God actually does is he's interested in the lives of, of his people and he cultivates lives of those who will be obedient to him throughout their lives, readying them for the task that one day he has in mind for them to write something down that we would later call the Bible or some book of the Bible. Mm -hmm. you know, God, God providentially prepares people in their world, letting them express themselves the way they are capable of doing it, the way their audience will understand it, because they are part of this world. They are who they are, and God knows it. He knows what he's mm -hmm. getting. It's by design. It, they, they, they can effectively communicate to their audience. The Bible was written to those people. It wasn't written to us. It's written for our benefit and for the benefit of every age. But to really understand what a biblical writer is, is laying down, you have to have that guy living in your head. You know, I like to say you have to have the, the Israelite living in your head when you read the Old Testament, and you have to have the first century Jew living in your head when you read the New Testament. And, and those people think quite differently about a number of things mm -hmm. than we do. The biblical writers and their audience are not us. Now, that sounds so obvious. Like, how could anybody not think that? Yeah. And you go and, into, into a class, and, and of course that'll be affirmed, but what is sort of set to the side is the worldview, the thought modes, the modes of expression, the metaphors, the symbols, all, the, whole, the whole intellectual climate, mm -hmm. the whole intellectual environment. Well, that has to be different because this is the word of God. Yeah. And then we get into this, oh, it just dropped from heaven, you know, kind of thing, and, and, and away we go. So then how important is it for us to understand sort of the unseen realm the, about angels and demons, what role did it play in today's sort of modern world or postmodern world in 21st century North America, let's say, the thought of angels and demons are often just sort of dismissed as so much superstition. But how important was that in the the worldview of the ancients? Let me just comment on, on, on that part of the question that dismissed as superstition. I think that is a minority view. Mm. And and I think this is good food for thought. I think the minority is mostly, you know, conservative Christians of various stripes. I mean, I can point you to the, to the academic studies, which I'm not going to bother. Christopher Partridge is a good name for this. But as the world becomes more secular, it is not rejecting a supernatural world. Mm. It is not satisfied with a materialistic, atheistic worldview. What it is dismissing is the Judeo-Christian articulation of it. But it is quite open to a supernatural, non-material worldview. So the I, I'm a the dismissal thing is is a minority view. But what is put in its place is the issue. Mm. You know what alternative spirituality are we talking about here? So I think on on the one hand that's good 
it's good, you know, to, to recognize that because people are open to having discussions who are not atheist materialists. So we, we have to, I think it's to our advantage to, to be able to hear what people are saying, understand what they're interested in, and saying, hey, you know, the Bible really affirms a very active, animate, supernatural world that's much bigger than the one you hear in church. And, and some of the questions you're asking are really important. So I think it's important for an apologetics angle. I think it's important for a biblical authority angle. Mm. Um, you know, you guys probably know that I, I distinguish between what the Bible says about the natural world in, in terms of its binding authority because of the creation mandate. We're supposed to find out what makes the world tick. God expects that, you know, to, for our knowledge to expand of, in, in, of the world he created for us to live in. That's different than the spiritual world. That isn't our world. We don't live in that world. Everything we know about it, we cannot subject to the to the tools of science. We can't even subject them to the rules, you know, tools of our own senses most of the time. Right. We have to be told things. It's revelation. Mm. And so when the Bible says things about the spiritual world, to me, it is an issue of biblical authority for the Christian, for at least for the Bible believer. You know? I think that's a good springboard, Dr. Heiser, because uh, uh, especially for the topic at hand, one of the things that I really appreciated in your book on angels was your, your concept and outlining of terminology. Because when I started, started myself to study the biblical languages, I realized pretty quickly that we had an issue within our language, English, in terms of the descriptions and the traditions around the words we use, words like angels. And I mean, as you all know, both Malak in Hebrew and Angelos in Greek, and even for that matter, other languages, Serethriel in, in Coptic, these are words that when we translate them in English don't necessarily connote the same thing. I mean, a Malak and an Angelos, they're messengers. It's an assignment, right? It's a job description. It's not what it is, but it, it's what it does. And so uh, where and why do you think this particular breakdown in talking about these heavenly creatures happened? I think it's largely the, if, if we want to use the blame word, and it, that might not be the right word because it sounds harsh. It's just sort of the way things are. Um, I think the, the transition to a, a uh, Greek-speaking world was significant because you have all this nuanced vocabulary in the Hebrew Bible. And then at, during the Hellenistic period, you get the Septuagint translated, and that's a committee translation like most big translation projects are. And you have authors treat the vocabulary of, of the Hebrew, the Semitic world, differently. Sometimes they, they try to be literal, sometimes they use transliteration, but by and large, they, they more or less default to the common vocabulary for the Greek speaker. And that is, well, supernatural beings who are loyal to the God of the Bible are angels, angelos. So we just stick that word on, on the good guys, the white hats. And then the, the bad guys are daimonion or daimon, you know, demons, okay? So when they do that, it still communicates good and evil, white hats and black hats, loyalty and disloyalty but you lose all the nuancing of the Hebrew vocabulary for it. So that, that's a major step because the New Testament writers are going to, for the most part, be using the Septuagint. And so it makes sense that they're going to use that terminology. 
in you know the, the, the content of the New Testament. So it, it's harder for someone to just be reading it in a translation to know that there's a lot loaded onto this one word, because if we look at it in its own context and, and we, we, we jump past the Septuagint back into the Hebrew Bible, there's a lot of stuff going on here. So Septuagint is the the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Right? Yeah, That's what I think, you're I think about. that was a major transition point. And then for us, since the early church inherits the Septuagint, at least you know one one half of the of the Roman Empire, the Greek speaking world, and then you know once the the Latin Vulgate is produced in the West. You know that's what you've got. So you 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 leave all of the nuancing in the Hebrew terminology three, for three quarters of your Bible. You leave that behind, and and that forces people who even just a couple hundred years into the early church, you know, the patristic fathers who are working in Greek or Latin. You can literally count them on one hand the number of guys who knew Hebrew. So that that confines their ability to think about the vocabulary just from the get-go. And that's where you get traditions start to replace exegesis, you know, when it comes to, to a lot of this stuff. And again, there's nothing sinister about it. It just, it's just the history of the church. It's the history of, of, of the world, you know, the, these transition points. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very long time until Hebrew is recovered. You know, you have to wait until the Renaissance, you know, to get the recovery of Hebrew as a literary language. It's going to be taught in universities. I mean, that, that's a long time. Yeah, uh, and when it does, then things start to to change. And for our for our purposes, you know, you get into the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, when we have deciphered Egyptian and Akkadian and you know Sumerian and all these different languages. Now we can sort of take a look at those juxtaposed to Hebrew and say, well, there, there's there's some significant relationships going on here, not just in the stories, but in the vocabulary itself. And so that, that's why we tend to approach things a lot differently now. For sure. For the sake of the listeners, why don't you parse out for us, you know, there's this term angels that's become sort of a catch-all phrase, but the Bible uses other words to describe these heavenly uh, ethereal beings. You have seraphim, uh, you have cherubim, um, and then uh, our listeners may be familiar with the word Elohim, but that actually also has a category in of itself of sort of uh, these supernatural beings. Why don't you parse out for us, you know, not all of these are angels, some of them are angels. How does that fit in? Yeah, well, let, let's start with, you know, in, in the angels book, I do spend the first chapter, as you noted, talking about vocabulary, and I, I make essentially three buckets. So there are terms that describe what a member of the heavenly host is by nature, the, the ontological terms, okay? And, and in this bucket, you'd put things like spirits, Okay, I, I put Elohim in here because Elohim is not about a specific set of unique attributes. You know, when we see the letters G-O-D, our brains default to, oh, a specific set of unique attributes. There's only one of those. Well, the Bible has many Elohim in it. And so by definition, when you get biblical writers using the word Elohim of things that are not the God of Israel, that tells you out of the gate that it's not about a unique set of attributes. So they wouldn't be doing that. Elohim is just, it's a term you would use to describe a member of the spiritual world. Okay, so that it's, it's an ontological term. You know, you, you go from that, you have terms, the second bucket would be terms of rank. Okay, where, where, a, where a member of the heavenly host sort of fits. 
And this is a, a smaller bucket, but it's significant because you have sons of God here, which turns out to be a, a really significant term. It's drawn from the language of the royal court in the ancient Near East. And it is associated with family members. You know, this is what kings do. The, the family members get, get, you know, the best positions, the best jobs, and so on and so forth. So sons of God is actually a familial term, a closeness term, and also therefore a rank in hierarchy term. Below them, you have other things. Essentially, that's the third bucket, the job descriptions, where, you know, you have um, terms like angel, malach, angelos, messenger. It, it, it describes what a thing does, not what a thing is or where a thing ranks, but what it does. So it's a job description. Seraphim and cherubim are also in this third bucket. They're job descriptions. One term, uh, cherubim, cherub, you know, comes from Akkadian. The other one is, is Egyptian, and they both describe guardians of sacred space. They protect uh, the space, you know, sacred space from defilement, okay? So it's, it's a job. It's a role. And this is, in the Bible, this is where you see them. They mark sacred space. You know, they, they define it, lest it be defiled. You know, like, they look at the signpost here. You don't belong here. This is sacred space. Or in these scenes in God's throne room where they purify someone to be there. Okay, th this is what they do. So those are sort of the buckets, but those are the ones that are more familiar, but you have melites, intercessor, mediator. Again, there's a, there's a whole theology in the Old Testament of angelic mediation, of, of taking requests to God and, ex, and explaining to people what God is doing. There's a, there are go-betweens. And, you know, it's significant that you don't get this idea in the New Testament because then Jesus is our advocate, he's our intercessor, you know, the, the, the theology reflects the elevation, the preeminence of Christ right. uh, in that. But, but that's a good example of a role that, you know, we would never even think about. The mm. destroyer is another one, you know, the 10th the, the, the plague. It turns out to be the angel of the Lord, you know. So you have a number of these things that, if you were, are able to sort of penetrate the English through a study Bible, or if you have you know, he, Hebrew under your belt, that you're going to start to be noticing different players, or at least a lot more variety than just beings flying around singing or something right. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love your use of uh, heavenly hosts. I feel like that's a, a lost term, you know, that we hear in some old hymns, maybe some Christmas songs, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah, God's armies. Um, how does the existence of, say, these lowercase g gods, these Elohim, how does that complicate the typical picture people have of, say, monotheism and polytheism, the way we think about it today? Yeah, it's because we're moderns. You know, it, monotheism was actually a term coined in the 17th century, uh, and it's 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 uh, antonym was not polytheism; it was atheism. <laughs> You know, we don't believe in a God, we believe in a God, you know, atheism versus monotheism. It was, that's when it was coined. But when we see the letters G, O, and D, you know, on a, on, a, on a screen or on a piece of paper, because we're Western and we've been, you know, raised in Western tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition, as opposed to sticking our noses in the Hebrew text. <laughs> mm. Um we are taught, we, our brain mentally defaults to, I see the letters G-O and D, that means a being who is omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, you know, creator, you know, these unique attributes. 
But that is not how a biblical writer used Elohim or thought about Elohim, because they call things that are not the God of Israel Elohim. The gods of the nations, they call them all Elohim, even the goddesses, they, they're still called Elohim. You know, you have the departed, uh, the, the, the spirit of the de deceased Samuel in 1 Samuel 28, Elohim. You know, why is this? Psalm 82, you have the, these gods who are corrupt and, and being judged by the Most High, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. They're called Elohim. Well, they're, they're not his equals. No Israelite's going to think my, my dead child or my dead aunt or uncle, they're an Elohim now, but they're, they're not the God of Israel. They, they don't have an attribute par with the God of Israel. That, that's ridiculous. But yet we don't make those distinctions as moderns because we are not taught any of that. We are not taught to look at a term like Elohim and its context and its varied usages. We are taught about G-O-D, and then we are taught about a set of attributes. So our brains just go there. And it, it does complicate things. You know, when, when I start talking about it in the book or whatever about plurality of Elohim or a bunch of Elohim doing this or that, you know, I, I have to, in the space of the book, explain, you know, all of that in more detail. Because people think that, you know, well, Mike must be a polytheist. No, a, a, a polytheist is... You know, is, that's what Mormons are, really. I mean, it, because they, they view all Elohim right. on the same level. That's why they have Satan and Jesus as brothers. They're all Elohim, you know. You've seen one, you've seen them all, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, whereas the biblical writers can call lots of things Elohim, but they, just, they describe the Elohim of Israel in very specific ways that they also explicitly deny to other Elohim. He is the lone creator. He is the lone sovereign. He alone is omniscient. He created everything else, including them. You know, so they, they don't they don't let any other Elohim slide into those, you know, those attribute, you know, relationships. They they're not doing right. that. So we're not talking polytheism here, but but that that is how we have been taught to think about. It. We're also not talking about henotheism either, because in a henotheistic system, you can have the lead deity be displaced. You can have a change at the top. No biblical writer is thinking that. Can you hash out the difference between polytheism and henotheism one more time? Because I think a lot of our listeners might be a little confused as to the difference. Polytheism is the belief in, in many gods. And, and by many gods, there, there's, there are attribute shared relationships among at least certain groups of those gods. You have multiple gods get associated with different things. Like there might be one that's a creator or a couple. You know, they, 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 they share participatory uh, powers and attributes with each other to do certain things. It's quite different from, you know, what you see in the Bible. Henotheism is a subset of polytheism. It's the belief that one God is better than the others, which sounds something like what, what's going on in the Old Testament, except for the fact that in a henotheistic system, the reason the top deity is there because people like him. He won a great battle. You know, he killed off another god. And, and, you know, his days might be numbered too. I mean, some other god could come along and get rid of this one. Again, that's not what a biblical writer is thinking. Monolatry is closer. The worship of only one god is allowed. That's a little, that's a little closer. It's a little more workable term. But none of these terms really capture the full essence of what a biblical writer would think. So this is why I tell people, look, 
just abandon the terms. None of them work sufficiently. They all contribute something. Okay, they are, they're all helpful in some way, but just they're, they're not going to work. So you're better off describing what a biblical writer would think as opposed to trying to stick right. a label on it. I think even for our audience, maybe the the conceptual idea of the Roman or Greek pantheon, you know, you have these multiple gods on multiple levels and they're warring and they can be replaced with one another. And this is why I, I um, this is a bit of an aside, but you know, why the, the Jewish concept of, of monotheism and monolatry was, was a little bit strange in the ancient world. You know, not only are they saying there's only one God, they're saying, well, actually yours, they may not exist or they, they're not a God on the same standing. I end up telling people, look, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is an Elohim. There's lots of Elohim, okay, in the spiritual world. It's, a, it's an animate populated place. Lots of Elohim. Yahweh is, is one of those. Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh, period, hmm. exclamation point. Yeah. And that's what a biblical writer thought. There is no interchangeability. There is no swapping one in and swapping another out. There's no attribute equality here. There is only one of those. So since mono Yahwism sounds dorky, <laughs> I don't use it. <laughs> I don't know about that. I kind of like it. <laughs> Maybe we should start a trend here. From this point forward, mono Yahwism. Tag mono Yahweh. Yeah. That's right. Get it tw- trending on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there are these categories. How do you read the allocation of the nations to the sons of God? Because you mentioned the sons of God, and we see in Deuteronomy 32.8 that there's this allocation. Why would God do that? And can you elaborate on what you think is going on there? That's a little like asking, why does God judge evil the way he does at any given point when he does it? If you could also solve that problem, that'd be great for us today. (laughs) The short answer is, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, it's not in my own job description here, but, you know, the, the Deuteronomy 32 thing is a judgment. You know, humanity is, is fragmented and, and assigned or allotted to these other gods and these gods to the nations. It's not just Deuteronomy 32.8. Your audience should know that it, and I, I go through this in my books, but Deuteronomy 4.19 and 20 is an important passage. You have the, you know, the, the sun, moon, and stars that are allotted to the nations, and Yahweh takes Israel as his own. And that, and that same host of heaven is defined as Elohim in Deuteronomy 17, 1 through 3. Same thing for Deuteronomy 29, 23 through 26. You get up to Deuteronomy 32, then you hit verse 8. You hit verse 17, and, and the Israelites now have been seduced into worshiping these sons of God who are allotted to the nations instead of the true God. And that's where we have the problem of idolatry for Israel come in. So this is initially a a punishment and a judgment. God essentially divorces himself from humanity. Okay, that we're after the flood. We had the flood. I gave you the Edenic mandate again. I thought, you know, we're we're trying to kickstart the Edenic plan. Humanity is still not obedient. And so God says, forget it. I, I refer to it as the Romans one event of the Old Testament. God says, fine, you don't want me to be your God? You're on the shelf. I'm divorcing you, you know, your, your toast, your history. And, he, and, and what he does is in the very next thing in, in the biblical storyline is he, he picks one guy in or of the Chaldeans, again, wherever that is, but Abram, and says, this guy and his wife are perfect. Watch what I'm going to do here. She can't have children. Wonderful. 
because now I'm going to enable her to have a child. And from that child, I'm going to start a new humanity. I've just put the old humanity on the shelf. I'm going to start a new one. You don't, these, these people over here don't want to get with the identic plan. I'm going to make a new one. And so we have Israel birth, birth through the power of God. That's the only reason it exists. So God makes a covenant with Abram. And here's where we learn that he doesn't forget about the nations. They're not divorced permanently. He tells Abram, look, now it's going to be through one, one of your seed, one of your offspring, that all of these other nations are ultimately going to be blessed. And we know that the seed is Christ. This is New Testament theology. The promise of the Messiah gets linked up to the Abrahamic covenant. We get all that. So this is God's plan. You're under judgment. You're under dominion of other gods. God still wants them ruled, <clears throat> ruled well. Why, why would God want humanity that he's put on the shelf ruled well? Because they're his imagers. He made them. They're still like him. So God honors that part of his creation. He wants them ruled well. How do we know? Because Psalm 82, the gods of the nations, that's what they're getting blown out of the water for. That's why God is so angry. That's when he, when he says to them, you know, how long are you going to, are you going to abuse, you know, you're going to act unjustly and sow chaos among the nations. And, you know, I, I said to all of you, you're, you're all Elohim, you're all sons of the most high, but you're going to die like men. So he pronounces an eschatological curse, you know, a death sentence on them. And at the end of the Psalm, the Psalmist gets it, obviously. And the Psalmist cries out, you know, Lord, rise up, O God, and take back the nations. Okay. The, the, this, the whole context for this is Deuteronomy 32. When are we going to see this happen? Well, you know, we learn later Isaiah 24 through 27, Isaiah 34, a few other passages that at the day of the Lord, this is when this is going to be wrapped up. In the meantime, God is going to pursue the renewal of Eden through Israel and ultimately through the Messiah and ultimately through Jesus, who is the Messiah and the church. And so the Great Commission is linked in Paul's writings to the nullification of the authority of the gods of the nations, who in Paul's language are the principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities. These are all terms of geographical dominion, which makes perfect sense in light of Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Right. It's also where Daniel gets his theology, the prince of Persia, prince of Greece, supernatural princes over geopolitical empires, sounds suspiciously like Deuteronomy 32. Right. So um, even just dovetailing off that, I mean, one of the questions that that brings to my mind are what are the implications for Gentiles worshiping other gods and not the God of Israel? If they were allocated to other divine beings, then why is, say, something like Gentile idolatry so problematic in the Old Testament? This is the perfect story to answer the, answer the question. So I, I got an email one day that was signed to me, Hercules. <laughs> So I thought, well, I got an email from Hercules. I should probably answer that one. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I answered the email, and it was a guy who, who lives in PA, and he had a podcast. And he says, look, because I'm a pagan, I worship the gods of Greece and Rome, but I just read your little book, Supernatural, which is the, the light version of Unseen Realm. And he goes, I loved it. He goes, I finally have somebody that I can talk to who understands my worldview. Mm. Can you come on my podcast? So I thought, well, this, this sounds interesting. <laughs> sure, why not? You know? So I go on this guy's podcast, and for the first four or five minutes, whatever it was, this guy's quoting Greco-Roman texts to me 
that articulate the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, mm. the allotment of these peoples to other gods. And I, I actually, in my demons book, I actually use a passage from Plato that does it really nicely, you know? And so he's like, he's like, this is, this is, is amazing that the Bible shares this worldview. And, and he goes, I have one question. If, if Yahweh is the most high, the God of Israel, and he set up this whole arrangement, what does he want? Mm. And it's like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and I use Paul, I said, look, here's what he wants. Look at Paul. Paul goes into a Gentile city. He knows the theology of Daniel 10. He knows the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. He knows that these, these, these aren't just demons that turn people into flesh puppets for a while. Okay, these are geopolitical entities, all right? They, they, they have enslaved their peoples, and, and their authority was granted to them, and they abused it, but that's the way it is. So Paul walks into a Gentile city and says, you know, I know what you people are thinking. You hear me preach Jesus, and it's it it just you know scares the you know the you know what out of you because you think if we convert if we embrace Jesus the gods that we're allotted to are going to be very angry and we're going to be in big trouble and so Paul says look don't worry about it the Most High became a man died for you on a cross rose again from the dead. And he has withdrawn the authority of these other gods from you. You are no longer burdened by being allotted and enslaved to them. God not only says it's okay to come home, he insists on it. So this is the gospel to the Gentile. Hmm. Who's, who is the most high? You know, and, and, and for, for Paul, it's, it's Christ. And this is why... He connects it in five or six passages when he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. He links it to the nullification, the stripping away of the authority of the rulers, the powers, the principalities, because they no longer have any claim on anybody. So, I mean, even, even before this, Jesus will go into these, these regions, the nation, you know, Gentile territory, and he'll do certain things. He'll say certain things. He'll do certain sign acts. You know, and I go through all this in Unseen Realm because he's telegraphing, look, I'm the Messiah of Israel. I'm the son of David. But I'm not here just for David. I'm not here just for Israel. I want every square inch of this place. It's mine. So, like, when he, when he, when he ascends to be at the right hand of God, which is the seat of authority— we miss, we miss verse 18 of the Great Commission. We think it's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. There's verse 18. Let's not forget that. All authority is given to me in and heaven and, and on, earth. on earth. Okay, well, who had the authority up to that point? Well, the ones that God appointed it to because they were under judgment and forsaken. That is no longer the case. So Paul links this to the Great Commission, the resurrection. He even links it to the second coming, the fullness of the Gentiles. I mean, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so what does God want? He wants you. That's what he wants. So you, you as a Gentile, you not only don't have an excuse, but you need not fear. Mm-hmm. God wants you to come back home. Mm-hmm. You are allowed to. He'd There's love a good news. to see you. Um, so uh, I'm just curious, in, in all of this, 
the word demons come to my mind, right? Or Satan and those kinds of things. The way we typically think of them are, okay, here are these beings, like angels that are created by God, but then, you know, um, Satan, right? He, or the Satan, rebels against God. And this is something you hear often, right? A third of the angels went with him, right? Which I, I can't really seem to find anything in the Bible so can you can you explain to us um, what might be a proper understanding of in light of everything that we've talked about? What what are demons? What are what's what's Satan and all of that? If you this this gets into into the, the three rebellion thing, which I, I I spent a little time in Unseen Realm on it. Uh, I, I spent a lot more time in the Demons book on it. But I like to get into the question this way. If you ask the average Christian, why is the world such a mess? You know, why do we have depravity and evil and all this stuff? The answer you're going to get is, oh, that's the fall. Adam and Eve, serpent, you know, garden and all that stuff. That's the fall. Well, if you asked the average Jew, first century Jew, the same question, that's not the answer you would get. The answer you would get is, well, there's actually three reasons why the world is such a chaotic mess. Now, the the first of the three is what happened in, in Eden, for sure. We have to own that. We rebelled, but there was also a supernatural rebel, again, some, some supernatural being that decided that I don't like humans as imagers. You know, I don't, I don't like sharing God's house with them. I don't need a, a bunk mate that, that's in flesh because they're inferior. You know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, he decides... I'm going to get rid of them. And the fastest way to do that is to get them to sin because God's not going to tolerate that. So we have a transgression. Now, this being obviously becomes known as Satan eventually. That's the term that gets attributed to him in the second temple period, the intertestamental period. In the New Testament, of course, you never see it in the Old Testament, but there's still a supernatural rebel in Genesis 3. He just gets called other things along the way. So that... That, that's him. And, and the, the result of that is estrangement from God and death. So that, that's a big problem. Everything dies now. There is no more Eden. Every, everyone is estranged from God. Eden is gone. So it's devastating. The second issue, again, if you're asking the first century Jew is, well, you got Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God, the daughters of men. You know, that, that's when we get the, the, the wacky Nephilim stuff in Genesis 6, 4. And that's where people fixate, you know, the giant clans that Joshua encounters and Moses and David later and Goliath and all this stuff. Okay. Okay. That, that's serious because they're like lethal enemies. All right. We, we get that when the, the spies spot the Anakim in the land in Numbers 13, it freaks them out. And it's like, well, let's just go back to Egypt, you know? <laughs> and that is the point of reference for the failure that the, the writer of Hebrews references several times. Mm -hmm. This is the failure of the Old Testament, this lack of faith with the Anakim. So that's all well and good. But, but what a, a first century Jew is most concerned about is, and I, and I go through all of the, the, the primary text data for this in my books, was the, the belief that these supernatural beings also taught people things. They were associated with false teaching that helped humanity more efficiently destroy itself. This is where you get idolatry, astrology, or at least the beginnings of idolatry, 
you get weapons of warfare, arts of seduction, all this stuff that Second Temple Jewish texts talk about. It all has, it actually does have Old Testament roots and, and even older than that, Mesopotamian roots. But this is what they're thinking. We're, we're, we're depraved. You know, and, and yes, we have our own, our own selves to blame in Eden. This is where it started. But somehow supernatural beings help humans to proliferate their own depravity and destroy themselves more efficiently. This is why, by the way, Peter and Jude, when they talk about false teachers, they bring up angels that sin. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're not just inventing it. Oh, we need something sexy here to say about false teaching. Let's talk about angels. <laughs> no, I mean, they're, they're getting it from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a deep part of, you know, what, what's going on in, in their minds. And then the third is the Babel event, you know, that we just talked about. So mm-hmm. what you've got is you've got a whole cast of characters You've got the being who becomes known as Satan that plunged humanity into estrangement with God and, and everything dies now. You've got another group that pl- that proliferates human depravity. Now, all of the traditions, including the New Testament, have the original offending sons of God or angels imprisoned until the time of the end. Mm-hmm. Their offspring, the Nephilim, according to all of the... This is one of those rare instances when Jewish tradition in the intertestamental period, everybody says the same thing. Where do demons come from? They are the disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim, of dead giant clans, dead Anakim, dead Rephaim. We see glimpses of that in the Old Testament in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 32, where you have the Rephaim in, in hell, in, in Sheol. Like, how'd they get there? Well, that's where they belong. That's where, that's where they are. That's where they live. You know, they, they, they roam about, you know, the earth. They harass people. They possess people. They want re-embodiment, you know, all this kind of stuff. This is why the Dead Sea Scrolls refers to them as unclean spirits. The New Testament uses the same term. Uncleanness has to do with forbidden mixture in Torah. That's why they're called bastard spirits, because that's what they are. Okay. I mean, they're not inventing vocabulary. They're, they're attaching it to certain episodes you know, in the Old Testament, certain concepts in the Old Testament. So if you ask the average Christian, where do demons come from? Oh, they, they are fallen angels that fell with Satan before, you know, before the fall or maybe in between Genesis 1 and 2. Or we, we make stuff up. There isn't a single verse that has a third of the angels rebelling with Satan. That's not where demons come from. Okay? You get a totally different answer from a Jewish thinker of Jesus' time who's reading his Hebrew Bible and trying to do something with the data. You get a totally different answer. But but that answer can be found in the New Testament, in Peter and in Jude and a few other places. Maybe Galatians 3, uh, you know, the law added because of transgressions, plural, not just one, but, you know, plural. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are a number of things like this that are, are sort of lurking underneath the surface of our translation that we, we miss. And I'm not saying that you need to know any of this to, to be saved or any of this to be rightly related to the Lord. You know, Mike's not saying the gospel's B when you thought it was A. Okay, it, we're, not, we're not saying any of that. What we are saying is that if you want to understand a lot of the things that Scripture teaches, you have to be thinking with the writers, you have to have them living in your head. Okay, it, it yeah. you know, your theology that you hold dear as a Christian, I'm a normal, boring, Orthodox, Trinitarian guy. 
okay, in the in the evangelical tradition, which really doesn't mean anything much anymore. But, you know, I, I believe in inspiration. You know, I will use terms like inerrancy. I'm a Trinitarian. What, what can I say? You know, I, I'm, I'm as right. milk toasty, run-of-the-mill is probably a better way to put it. I'm as run-of-the-mill as you can get theologically. But the reasons I hold these things can be dramatically different. If your tradition, even as a, a believing Christian, stinks, if I know that if I were an unbeliever, I could destroy it in five minutes and burn it in front of your eyes. What I'll do is I will burn it in front of your eyes, but tell you I'm your friend and I'll give you something better. Yeah. So that, so that you're, you're protected against people who hate your faith. Yeah, that's that, a real that's, friend. That's the mission. That, that's my mission. Yeah. Here. I just want people to read scripture in context. You don't need to be afraid of your Bible. I don't need to protect you from your Bible. Traditions are good things, but they're limited. Creeds are good things, but but by design, they're just distillations of, of core ideas. They are not scripture. They are not meant for you to use as filters for scripture. Mm-hmm. Scripture should be unfiltered. You know, the if you want to know it, you, you try to get the ancient world in your head. And, and I know that sounds like a terrific burden. And I'll be honest, it, it takes work. But we live at a time when we have access to more data than anyone who's ever lived collectively combined, you know, to this day. I came to the Lord as a teenager, okay? And you know what I knew as a teenager? I had heard of Jesus, probably in swear language or something. <laughs> I had heard of Adam and Eve, and I had heard of Noah. I was tapped at that point. I don't have any kind of Christian upbringing. We did, we knew nothing, mm. just nothing at all. So on the one hand, people listen to me sometimes and, and they despair, like, oh, I'll never learn all this stuff. I'll never. Well, okay, look at me. What I am is I'm, I'm not a genius. All right. I've, I've met geniuses. Like I know what a genius is and it ain't me. Okay. While that guy was, you know, playing Mozart by heart, I'm watching wrestling. Okay. As a <laughs> this is where I'm at, you know? So I'm not that, but what I am is, is I'm the result of a few minutes a day, learn something new every day. Mm-hmm. At the end of a year, that's 365 new things. And now you repeat the process. I can relate to that in terms of being milk toast, uh, both being in my description and my complexion, probably more on the end of milk than it is on toast for me. Um, <laughs> listeners might not be able to get that through the through my voice, um, but I, I sunburn when I think about the sun. But as we as we you know encourage other believers, the average, uh, if you will, the bums in the pews, you said you know you don't you don't have to do that deep dive. You don't have to get a doctorate. Um, maybe you should probably learn some of the biblical languages. It might help you. But how would you encourage someone to just start that process? Uh, you mentioned just reading a, your Bible, um, but digging deeper. I think there are some really, really core tools. Um, I think the Net Bible is an excellent tool. Um, if you're reading your, your own Bible that you prefer, have the Net Bible along with you because Mm-hmm. It has tens of thousands of notes from the translators who created the Net Bible. It's a committee translation that took years, and they were all experienced scholars. Yeah, just for the, the listeners, that's the New English Translation. Yep. And it's available free online. 
but but the notes do something that no study Bible does for you. It explains why they translated the text the way they did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can learn a lot just from that. Um, that's a key tool. I do think that that you should learn how to use a concordance at least in the digital world. How to search, uh, penetrate your English and search for Greek and Hebrew you know, meanings at least. It is a good idea to learn a little bit of Greek and Hebrew, the grammar, so that you can understand, you know, when scholars and God forbid pastors, you know, actually talk about biblical languages in the pulpit. <laughs> like, what's an aorist? What's a present tense? I mean, there are tools that are just glossaries. You just, you look it up. Well, I know what that is now. The perfect tense means something happened in the past with continuing results. Well, I, you know, when I run across one of those, that's a good thing to think about now, you know, when, when I'm doing my Bible study. I mean, there there are real sort of low entry level tools like concordances online, you know, biblos.com is one that's free, gives you an interlinear that you can search for, you know, digitally. I mean, I worked at Logos Bible Software for years. You know, we, we intentionally tried to create tools that anybody can use. So right now, Logos has what are called reverse interlinears. Okay, I was... I was part of the crew that, that pioneered this stuff digitally. You can actually right-click on an English word and run a search on it, and your search actually runs the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. You don't know that, okay? You don't even have to know the alphabet. You just pick Lemma Bible, and it's actually doing a Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic search for you, but you started in English, and it returns the results in English, in your English Bible. You know, there's so many tools like this. So I would say pick two or three or four really good tools. I'm gonna gonna plug my own little, people don't even basically know this exists, but I I did a little three book series called the 60 Second Scholar Series that Zondervan picked up. So it's like brief insights. It's the brief insights series on Amazon. Every, Every chapter of the book is 500 words or less. But there's a book on the 80, 80 suggestions for Bible study, mm-hmm. 80, 80 things you should know to really understand the Bible, 80 things you should know to understand doctrine. Start with stump, something like that. Um, it'll, it'll, you know, it'll start st- stimulating you know, your interest, you know, expose you to different tools. But that's where you got to get started. And the, the, the important thing is just to get started. There's so much out there. Just yeah. take something, one, two tools, use them for a year till you feel you're really, you're really comfortable, you've mastered them, and now you, it's time to move on to something else. Learn something new every day. Yeah. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I would highly recommend uh, our listeners to check out Dr. Heiser's works. Now, Dr. Heiser, for our listeners, if they want to learn more about you and your work, where would you send them? Yeah, my my homepage is dr, as in doctor, msh.com. So if, if you land there, you can find just about everything else I'm into. So that's the homepage. Uh, all the books are on Amazon. Uh, nakedbiblepodcast.com, certainly. I spell just like it sounds. Uh, that That's a little... That's a little deeper dive, but, you know, people just find it and they listen to all 380 episodes. I get those emails like, I can't believe you just did that. Um, but that that's another one. If you're into the sort of the, again, the fringe stuff, I have a YouTube channel, Fringe Pop 321. 
we have, we're, we're about 120 episodes in where, again, we take weird stuff on the internet, you know, all these different kind of fringe topics. And we try to just <laughs> discuss them intelligently. We, it's a way to teach critical thinking mm-hmm. and respect for primary sources. And the Bible is one of those. Um, and, and to debunk mythologies about the Bible and about Jesus as well along the way. But we, we, we're all over the place on that one. Mm-hmm. I have a podcast called Paranormal, where we review paranormal topics using peer-reviewed you know, research on those topics which a lot of people don't even know exists, but yeah, it really does. So that's me and four other guest hosts. So I, I'm into all sorts of stuff. You know, it, I write fiction. Again, you can find that on, on my homepage. I like, it's, I have two novels. It's like scientific, theological thrillers, that kind of thing. So I, I, I'm just trying to, to get people into biblical content through a variety of gateways. Because at the end of the day, that that's what I want. I, I I want you to I want you to really spend time with Scripture, think about it, appreciate the wondrous thing that it is, and you know just get excited about the Bible and and what God wants. You know, with for you, with you, and just the larger picture of of what you know what He's about. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to join us and our listeners and talk to us about angels and demons and the unseen realms as a whole. Um, Thank you so much for that. Yep, You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, as our friend Troy always says, love God, love people.